Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting into go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. How's it going, guys? All right. Everybody enjoying Reno? <laughs> we, uh, we ate at the Purple Parrot. Has anybody been to the Purple Parrot? Ben, uh, ben O'Brien, he thought the smoke ribs, they got a guy back there with a pack of camel lights. <sighs> smoke ribs, babe. <laughs> it had a taste of like nicotine to it, which I enjoyed. Uh, let's hit some introductions real quick. Start down there with the Eagle. Giannis, producer of Meat Eater. Thank you. Remy Warren, just the guy they picked up off Virginia Street this morning. <laughs> I like it. Uh, ben O'Brien, the host of the Hunting Collective Podcast. Gray Thornton, President and CEO of the Wild Sheep Foundation on a work release program from Soldad Prison. <laughs> Ryan Callahan, I'm the Director of Conservation at Meat Eater. All right. Woo! You know, uh, a long time ago on the show, I talked about getting a gun pulled on me 
in Nevada, and, a lot, and, I, and I meant to tell the story, but never told the story, and then I just started saving it because I thought I'd tell it here. Because this is a, I had a gun kind of pulled on me, but never like really pulled on me until the, the very first time I came to your state. And I was uh, doing a magazine article about a guy who goes by the name, he's a, a denim detective. And this guy goes down into old mine shafts in mining towns and looks for old clothing. Uh, and he sells vintage clothing, like, you know, like jeans that have the buckle back, like the old style from There Will Be Blood, the movie and stuff. He sells these to film designers and clothing designers. And I was doing this profile piece on this guy. And uh, shortly before I went out with him, someone had been to a mining town here in Nevada and found a pair of Levi's that he sold to Levi Strauss for, what was it, uh, 46532 bucks. Because like, Levi's, when, when San Francisco burnt down, Levi's lost their library. So Levi's has clothes they know they made, but they have no examples of it. And when someone can find an example of a missing thing from their library, they'll pay a lot of money for it. So we're out doing this, looking for all these clothes. And we wind up where some guys had, were working these small claims. And we get to this guy's place. And he's got like a trailer he's living in. He's got some dogs. And there's a truck parked there. And it's just a little dinky trailer. I mean, the trailer's not for me to honest long. So I go up and bang on the door because we're going to ask him if we could have a gander around. And no one answers the door. So like a couple of idiots were just standing around in his yard and pretty soon this door comes open like, like hard, you know, and he, in my piece, I talked about this guy had a voice like to make like John Wayne shit his pants. You know, it's like, bam, it comes out and just levels a shotgun at us. It turns out and he's yelling at us and I can tell when he's yelling that he's deaf. So the whole time we're banging on his door, he didn't know. And all of a sudden looks out the window and there's a couple of hosers standing out in his yard and like detains us at gunpoint. And we're just trying to scream real loud, like, whatever, come back. We eventually get the car and drive. And we drove two hours. I can't remember what town we went into. Drove two hours. And I remember ordering a vodka tonic, man. And two hours later, I reached out. My hand was still shaking so much I could barely grab that. <laughs> barely grab that drink. So whenever I think about this place, I think about getting a gun pulled. Welcome yeah. <laughs> My uncle tells that story a lot different, Steve. He's like, there's these two guys trying to steal my pants from my trailer. <laughs> we, uh, just to return to that, to return to that, I don't want to dwell on it, but the coolest clothing item I found with this guy, it, it was in this old cabin and someone had, they had moved a wood stove because there's like two chimneys in this old cabin and someone had to plug up one of the stove pipes, had shoved a pair of blue jeans wadded up into a stovepipe. And these were J.C. Penny, old J.C. Penny blue jeans. And you picture, like, with a cylinder, how much sun actually makes it down, like, in the course of the day, how often sun, like, shoots down a cylinder. The part of those pants that was up was bleached, pure white. The rest of the pants were still dark. And when you opened the pants up, it was like a tie-dye shirt with that one bleach part, and it was a really old pair of J.C. Pennies stuffed into a stovepipe. Uh, Greg, can you bear with us? Bear are with you it. comfortable? Very. Okay. We've got to run through a little, like, it's a thing we do like to do where I've got to run through some listener notes and feedback and whatnot. And then we're going to, then we're going to have you lay, you're going to have you set the scene for Sheep Show, Sheep Show 2019. Um, okay. 
We talked not long. A guy wrote in, he had an interesting word that I wanted to share where oftentimes we're talking about like ethical issues. Like you, who, who all in here is familiar with Jack O'Connor, the outdoor writer, Jack O'Connor? Yeah. We call Yanni, Yanni's 13th nickname is uh, Yanni O'Connor because Yanni likes the writings of Jack O'Connor. And if you read Jack O'Connor's sheep hunting stories, they tend to just kind of get up on a group of sheep and everybody just starts shooting. And uh, they'll be like, lo and behold, we got six, you know, after 100 rounds are fired. And when we're talking about this, I'm always trying to like present that at the time, right? I'm always like, well, you know, at the time, what was normal in Jack O'Connor was actually probably like sort of a progressive-minded person for his, his time. And we spent a lot of time explaining like what things that used to happen and how we look at it now and it seems like not a great idea, but at the time maybe was. And this guy wrote in to propose that we start using the word presentism, meaning applying today's moral standards to bygone times. So from now on, when someone does that, I'm going to accuse them of presentism. Um, we got, had a big talk recently at a past episode about party hunting. In some states, you're allowed to party hunt. One dude has a tag, but other dudes can hunt the tag. And that led to a talk about partying. And uh, a pilot wrote in to say, like, you know, I appreciate you guys taking so much time to talk about gun safety. In the, in the aviation world, in my circle, we have a rule of thumb called 12-hour bottle-to-throttle rule meaning you do not touch the throttle if you had touched the bottle in the last 12 hours. This would make it impossible for Ronnie Bame to hunt. <laughs> but it's like, it's an interesting thing. Uh, I also shared a story not long ago. We were talking about, on, on, on the subject of gun safety, that like when you check a rifle, you know, to see if it's empty or full, you can kind of like gander up in there. Or I was saying I like to always finger in my rifle, right? I'll put my pinky to, in there. So we got a lot of guys writing in about fingering your rifle. And the guy was, <laughs> writes it, this happens to his buddy. His buddy gets himself a Marlin lever action, and he's watching TV, fingering his rifle. Gets his pinky stuck in the loading ramp where he cannot get it out. He's trying with one hand to, to see if he could somehow dissemble the rifle and eventually realizes that he's going to have to go to the emergency room to extract his pinky but he needs to, he, now he needs to walk into the emergency room with a rifle. So this dude calls the sheriff's department to say, I'm about to call the hospital, but I'd like you to know that I'm coming in uh, armed. So he gets down there and they send, an off, they send a sheriff's officer to meet the guy at the thing. And the nurse is prying him about, is he suicidal? And another person is asking him um, if his gun is loaded. <laughs> and they eventually get some lube poured down. They get some lube poured down the muzzle and he gets his finger free. And he's, this guy remarks that it was odd that his friend then went and traded that rifle in. <laughs> uh, quick thing I got to touch on too. We talked about tamales not long ago and people were really dismayed by our lack of understanding of tamales and tamale making process is tamales like are you enough where like is it regional yeah, uh, yeah i make tamales all the time you grew up eating tamales yeah see like being northern tier dudes how can we yeah. be expected to know about 
Is there a tamale line, like where the tamales start and stop, the tradition? Because I was above it, wherever it was. I think yeah. your corn <laughs> comes down here for the tamales, but the tamales never go back. Yeah, it's a one-way trade. Corn, yeah. you, guys don't <laughs> yes. send, you guys don't yeah. send tamales. Exactly. Uh, yeah, a lot of people were like dismayed how little we knew about tamales. And, and a, a guy wrote in to say there's a process. Nix, do you know this word? Nixtamalization. I'm pronouncing it wrong, I'm sure. Nixtamalization which is the process of soaking corn or any other grain in an alkaline solution. They used to use it, the lye and wood ash to make an alkaline solution that you would soak corn in. And this is what gives you the, the, what's the word I'm looking for here? You don't know this Remy? No. Big tamale guy. I don't make my own Mesa though. You know, I'm not like, I'm not like Masa, right? Masa, okay. Yeah. So that's what it, it's the because pro- we did we didn't know this that everybody wrote into correction. So I want to share the correction. It's the process, and then you get homily, and you grind that, and that gives you the masa or corn flour. And a lot of guys wrote in about the best. All everybody has their own best way to reheat a tamale. One guy said he was an oil guy in Texas. Wrote in that he started working on a crew that was all guys from Mexico, and they taught him to heat up bacon grease and char that tamale in a pan until the husk is blackened. And that is the only way to reheat a tamale in his estimation. Hmm. You feeling it? Other guys were like, I put them in my microwave. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, once the tamale's hot, it's a hot tamale. Like that's, that's the goal. You get a hot tamale and you eat the tamale. It doesn't matter how it got hot. You can yeah, use that little hot pocket sleeve, you know, put, the, put it in there and put it in the microwave. But you don't want a crispy tamale. You, you, you want a, like a hot, non-soggy tamale. A hot tamale. We dude, had dude. a conversation not long ago about uh, cheese curds, which you guys don't eat down here. Not very often. Okay. In, in the north, a lot of fellows eat cheese curds, and what people call cheese curds is squeaky cheese. And it's like when it's good, if a, a discerning Wisconsinite will bite a cheese curd and get a good squeak. It squeaks on your teeth. If it doesn't squeak, that's a sign that that cheese curd has been sitting too long. And a buddy of mine was saying that to, to re-squeak a cheese curd, he likes to put it in his, on his dashboard to soak up the sun. And somehow this will re-squeak a cheese curd. <laughs> Another buddy of mine from Wisconsin was very incredulous of this. And he's like, I don't think that was a guy from Wisconsin. Because no guy from Wisconsin would let a cheese curd sit so long that it lost its squeak in the first place. <laughs> the, the last quick uh, listener feedback thing is we had a conversation about what is it about when you're eating an apple in the woods that you want to huck the apple core? Even though you're leaving, you're not going to stay there. You don't eat an apple and go like this. No matter where you are, it's better if the apple core was somewhere else. Um, and I was wondering why that's the case. Cause we're all sitting there. We all eat apples and we go, and if you were over there, you'd throw it so that it was here when you left. And there's a guy wrote in and he, he's got a spot where he hunts. This is another guy in Wisconsin and he's got a shooting lane. That's his favorite shooting lane. And he's got his second favorite shooting lane. And he points out that he likes to throw his core into his second favorite shooting lane. Cause he's not sure if the smell of human would impact anything. So he says, maybe it'll help 
the second lane, and I know that it won't ruin the first lane. So he's like a targeted core thrower. With all that said, Greg, can you tell us about Sheep Show? <laughs> <laughs> like how many, how you know, many people? You know, I was going to, I think a better segue would have been a tamale story. Oh, please. You got one? Of course. Okay. So November, I'm down in uh, Sonora, Mexico. We're going to do a, uh, a sheep release. We're going to release 21 desert bighorn sheep from a, from a high fence area into complete free range, 100,000 acres of free range. So, you know, Remy, you'd know this. I mean, are tamales usually something that you would find something that could crack a tooth in? No, he no. should not. <laughs> so here I am, minding my own business in the back of a truck, up with two Mexican friends up front. We're driving along. They said, would you like a desert bighorn sheep tamale? I mean, that's pretty special. Yeah. So I get this desert bighorn sheep tamale, and I'm munching away on the tamale, and pretty soon... Well, that sound must be a, bit, a little bit of bone. It's an olive pit. An olive pit? An olive pit in my tamale. Long and short of it, I thought, okay, well, that's fine. I put the t- pit away. Pretty soon I realized I just cracked my molar, and I've swallowed it. So I'm messing around with this, and finally my Jorge goes back and goes, something wrong? I go, yeah, I cracked my molar on this tamale. Oh, green olive pit. <laughs> You're telling me. Okay. So now I've got, a, I've got three or four days in, in Sonora with a cracked tooth. But, you know, the hospitalities of, of the Mexican is just kind of second to none. Yeah. So we have a nice dinner that night. We eat steaks, go to sleep, get up the next morning. And at breakfast, they had brought me a crown that they'd found out underneath the table. Somebody's tooth. They said, Gray, we found your tooth. I said, no, 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 I swallowed my tooth. No, no, this is your tooth. But anyway, that's my tamale story. <laughs> but it wasn't your tooth. It wasn't my tooth. Oh, okay, good. All right. so, but, well, you know, think, there's ways. There's ways of the coincidence. Fella, there are ways a fella could go recover. You know, I, I, I they followed you, they followed there, you off into the bushes. Yeah. Right. Right. I'm with you. So, anyway, you so, segue off the tooth back into the sheep show. So, well, it's all about the desert bighorn sheep. Oh, I see. Which is one of the four North American sheep is what uh, we concentrate here with the uh, Wild Sheep Foundation, at least in North America, but we do work all over uh, the world. But we're here at the sheep show. It is our 42nd uh, Sheep Foundation convention. Uh, we, we call Reno our second home. Uh, we've been here 36 some odd times. Uh, we'll have about 10,000 people coming through the door over the next three days. Uh, you all are a part of it. Um, what this is is our celebration of the hunt, our celebration of conservation, our celebration of the restoration of, of wild sheep, certainly in North America, but now worldwide. Um, bighorn sheep back in the 1960s, 1970s were at their all-time low, about 25,000 bighorn sheep, and that included desert in North America. Uh, through the efforts of people that are out there in this audience, the Sheep Foundation, our partners in the agencies, uh, and then our chapters and affiliates, we've increased those numbers threefold to 85,000 bighorn sheep in North America. So it's a fantastic conservation success. The Wild Sheep Foundation's purpose is to put and keep wild sheep on the mountain. So that's what we do. We do it by raising money and having a damn good time. I mean, what, what other show... Can you come and listen to Steve Rinella podcast and then go right outside and get a tattoo <laughs> of a, either a skull or we've got some petroglyph art 
or even a youth. So it's just a, just a, a great time. Um, and you can win a sheep hunt. You can win a sheep hunt right here tomorrow. We'll have the less than one club reception. Did you know uh, Callahan won the less than one club? Yeah, he sure did. He won the less than one I club. I for international. international. Oh. There's two people sitting up here that have won sheep hunts from this organization. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. Who's the other one? Me. Well, actually, <laughs> I, I'm going for my third win this year, so watch out. Yeah, Ben said he, uh, you could win a sheep show just going into the bathroom to take a leak here, a sheep yeah. hunt. He you said can win so a sheep hunt just hunts. about anywhere in this building, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> there was a guy two years ago that had gone to his room to take a leak, and he's watching the live stream, and we drew his name. And you have to be present to win. No. Sucks to be that guy. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. Bad news. So he ran down, but it was too late. He came down and he goes, we drew again. I said, does anyone know this guy? We drew again. And he goes, damn, that was a bad move. I go, oof, that was a bad move. So, so why did he go to his room? Take a leak. He's got like shy bladder. I think so. <laughs> um... <laughs> Fun uh, quick fact for everybody, the big guy uh, running around here, Ryan Thompson, uh, he and I met uh, on one of my first guiding gigs, uh, guiding uh, whitewater and fly fishing outside Glacier National Park. And he just welcomed a new baby into the world. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, maybe thanks to everybody here tonight, that baby will live in a world that has more sheep than uh, us. Than conception. Than we have. Uh, anything else you want to throw in? What about what do people? Anything else people you need know, to know? You know, we've got we've get got going? banquets that uh, we kicked off last night, uh, Wednesday night, grand opening. We've got a conservation night banquet tonight over at the Pepper Mill. Uh, Ram Awards tomorrow morning at the Pepper Mill, and a Is ladies' lunch. Awards? Ram Awards. Ram Awards. Ram Awards. And then we have a ladies' lunch that'll be here in the Mount Rose Ballroom. Uh, our legacy night. <laughs> <laughs> Ben, you're going to go to that. What? Yeah, I'll be there. You'll be a server. We've got a le- Legacy Night banquet, Steve, and then our grand finale Saturday night after a life member breakfast on Saturday morning. So um, last year we directed $5.6 million into wild sheep restoration, conservation, and advocacy, and we do it from uh, what we raise here. So pretty, Great, pretty impressive deal. Can you, can you guys real quick, like... Uh, Less than one is less than obvious. Can you explain what that means? You have less than one sheep. You've hunted, you hunted, you've you, killed so you've less got than zero one. sheep. So it was kind of funny. You have, have a guy named Justin Phillips who was sitting there with some friends, and I think they had a few cocktails in them. And, and we had just finished up one of our banquets. It's late night, and, and they're lamenting on the fact they're young guys and gals. And they thought, you know, we've got all these programs of. Uh, uh, one more for four because you needed just one more sheep to get your four. And he goes, what about you know, folks like us that have less than one sheep? That makes sense. You know, you haven't hunted a sheep yet or hadn't at least taken a sheep. So he came to me and he goes, hey, what about a less than one club? I said, I like it. Great graphic designer. So he came up with a real cool logo. Steve, that was our greatest ever membership program because the idea was you join that less than one club for 25 bucks you need to be a member of the wild sheep foundation and we'll put you into drawing for some free sheep hunts and get you kicked out of the club yep. so some of us then when we got our first ram we'd put red uh 
tape over our Lesson One Club shirt, and the big deal was you got to get kicked out. So now we celebrate the only club that you join and want to be kicked out of. Yeah. So that's the Lesson One Club. We will be in here tomorrow uh, in the afternoon. We'll have probably about 1,500 people in here. Um, you see the beer trucks on the side. Last year, 25 kegs in two hours. No shit, really. So as I said, you know, I said this from the podium last night. I think the Wild Sheep Foundation, you know, great conservation organization, but we're basically a drinking club with yep. a sheep hunting problem. And so it was, Cal, it was last year that you and your buddy won hunts. Yes. Yeah. So I actually, right at, you know, kind of the 11th hour, I signed up everybody uh, that I came down here with at First Light and uh, got everybody signed up, paid. We all came in here, uh, obviously not expecting to win anything, but you get a T-shirt and you get a, a mug for unlimited refills, and so it's a good time, and it's kind of fun. It's really an amazing thing to win in this situation because Everybody is ecstatic for mm-hmm. you, and uh, I, I would I wouldn't be. Oh yeah, I'd be like sulking in the corner. Well, Randy Newberg's <laughs> like, Cal, when I win this thing, uh, you gonna come help me pack this sheep out? I'm getting a little old. And I was like, Yeah, man, no problem. That's like Ryan Callahan, like, huh? So and uh, yeah, so I highly highly encourage folks to come in. It's twenty five bucks, and um, it's uh, a really fun crowd, if nothing else. Yeah, Ryan, and you can, at our membership booth right over there, you can sign up to Lesson One Club, get a cool T-shirt. That's another 20 bucks for the beer reception. You get a nice Yeti mug and a bottomless mug, so have a good time. Let's see if we can great, break that 25 kegs in two-hour record. Uh, with a crowd uh, that we're expecting, I think we can. You can get there. Uh, I want to jump into uh, taxidermy, freezers, and sheep nuts. We'll start with taxidermy. This is a good question. It's something I hadn't thought of. When I, a guy wrote in, I'm stuttering over myself. There's a thing that I think about when I'm at my mom's house, because my mom still has my late father's taxidermy hanging around the house. So I wonder, um, you know, bless my mother. She's still in the house I grew up in. But someday I'm like, someday, right, this taxidermy, um, if, th- if things go the way they seem to go with human beings, um, this taxidermy will need to go somewhere and find a home. And, and I've been thinking about this lately, and two guys have written in with different versions of the same thing. One was a guy that said, nearby me, they're doing an estate sale, and I went to the estate sale, and there's a lot of taxidermy for sale. He's like, why do I feel like such a loser to buy another man's taxidermy? He's like, is it okay to have another man's taxidermy in your home? That's a good question for me because my wife talks about how mad I get even to have another man's meat in the home. Meaning like, <laughs> like I in my that. freezer, right? I can understand that. In my, uh, like I don't like, like if I come home and I realize that someone, whatever my, my mother-in-law is in town and someone like bought a chicken and I look and there's like store meat, I get irritated. So... For me to be like, like, for me, no. If it was a buddy of mine or something, but I couldn't, yeah, couldn't have another man's taxidermy hanging in my house. And part two, and I'd be curious to hear everybody's perspective on this, part two is, 
a guy wrote in about the dad question. And this guy has his, his dad's got all this taxidermy. He doesn't want the taxidermy. And he's like, how should I dispose of it? I don't want to sell it because then it's going to be some other guy with my old man's taxidermy. And he's thinking about making a funeral pyre and burning the old man's taxidermy rather than it falling into someone else's hands. Any guidance that these two, that you guys can share with these two individuals? There's a thing in the, in the art world or in like maybe the hipster art world where you'd go to an antique shop and there's just an old taxidermy with a price tag on it would say like $1,000. Yes. $2,000. Yes. Somebody's old buck mount that looks terrible. And the worse, the, the more terrible it is, the more expensive it is. And that's very much a reality. I live in Austin, Texas. You can go downtown and get a $2,000 deer mount if you'd like to. That's not yours. Because but with that, in that world, it's like there's a little bit of irony. So you want it to seem old. Yeah. You might put some glitter on it, something like yeah. that, make it look real nice. But uh, what about the old man question? If your old man's taxidermy, old dad's taxidermy. I can see that. Burning it. Or like, you know. <laughs> I can see burning it, yeah. Or, you know, I got, uh, you know, all of us adventurers out there, you know, something, something bad happens to one of us, and I end up with uh, Yanni's... Uh, old buck mount and I get to be like oh yeah you mean Giannis's buck and that's a good way to like talk about Giannis uh, you know years after his demise I can see something like that like remember your buddy fondly but it's just an odd thing because taxidermy is worth nothing right it's like it is worth a great 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 amount to the person who went on that trip and had that adventure and you get to say like when people say oh wow look at that they don't mean look at that thing and how much like did it score it's like oh wow please tell me about the adventure and the story that went along with this yeah. and that can really only be done well by the person who had that first hand account went out and shook hands with them as you like to say yeah but some other guy's stuff you don't even know if he was uh, you know he might have been some asshole I mean who knows but you could turn that into a good story. Yeah. That's a, it's a tough one because like for me, taxidermy, you know, it, it means so much to the person. Whereas if you're just someone else's taxidermy, it's just like buying some home goods, goods crap that you put up on the wall. Um, you know, God. now, like if it's your dad, you would think there's probably at some point where you went on a hunt and like that, you know, just because you didn't kill it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean something to you. But if he's just like, oh, he shot all this stuff and I don't want it at all, then why does he even have a problem with somebody else having it? Yeah. See what I'm saying? Like he cares so little about the experience there that, but he cares if someone else has it. That doesn't make any sense. No, that's a good point. Why not just get rid of it in that way? Sell it. And then take that money and go on your own hunt and put something else on your wall. Yeah. Yeah, as long as whoever buys it and then owns it, you know, can apply their own value to it, then... Who cares? You know, and I think that I was just thinking about it from the perspective of the taxidermist. When they make it, they don't give really a shit probably about your story. I mean, they do thousands of them a year, right? It's like a that's their uh, life's work, and it's art. Taxidermy is art, right? And so he'd probably rather have it just sit on any wall as long as people can appreciate like the job well done versus you throwing it in a pile and burning it. 
just because you don't want it in someone else's hands. Yeah, but there's a drama about burning it. And, uh, but <laughs> sure. my, my old man had such a peculiar taste. Like he has a, he, the first fawn he ever killed with his bow, like a six-month-old deer. He got that mounted. He got a, <laughs> he got a wild pig's ass mounted. And another pig's head mounted, and he keeps them like he kept them like separate, so the wall is you know like on one side of the wall, like there's that, and the other side of the wall, there's the head. But yeah, burn it. That's fuel <laughs> <laughs> pyre. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside. Planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing. Taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do? For your family this spring, you can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to PolicyGenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. It's policygenius.com. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code Meat Eater. That's a good deal. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. 
I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Can I, I got a, a, like a kind of funny story that is actually going to divulge something that I've been keeping a secret for a very long time that refers to taxidermy. And my brother's actually here, so he's going to hear it for the first time. But this just reminded me, right? So like quite a few years ago, we're sitting, like when I was his roommate, we're sitting in the kitchen and his now wife, who's his girlfriend at the time, we were talking about home decorations, right? Okay. And she, you know, like sometimes, like a lot of people in relationships have like a butting heads of when it comes to hanging some antlers or a mount or whatever. I'm sure some people understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, I you have know? not had to live with that, but I know that it that, happens. It happens, right? So we are having this conversation and his now wife is like, no, the, is, you know, a lot of these are going to go to the garage. And I was like, yeah. But they meet like that is a decoration in the house that means something that you can't go by to store, like a shitty home goods sign that says something that you read once and never read again. She's like, no, I read my signs and I read them all the time. <laughs> live, so, eat, yeah, love, right? You know, live, like love. we drink wine in this house, and when the wine's gone, we drink more wine, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, right. Know that. So to prove a point, about four years ago. I got this great idea. I took a sign right by their front door that said, what did it say? Um, I'm a nurse. I'm here to save your ass, not kiss it, right? So that day, four years ago, I took that. I scanned it into my computer. I used Photoshop to rearrange the letters and say, I'm a nurse. I'm here to wipe your ass, not kiss it. Okay. Then I glued that over the front and stuck the sign back. (laughs) Four years later... (laughs) The sign is still there. <laughs> but had somebody messed with the antlers, I would know immediately. <laughs> yeah, if all of a sudden it was like a forky buck hanging where you had a nice big buck, you'd yeah. know. Yeah. You'd know. It's like, it means something. You look at it every day, and every day you think of those memories, but every day you look at the stuff you got at the home goods store, you don't have that same connection. Yeah. And now, I mean, okay, I, I wanted to see how long it went, but I feel like four years is enough and I can finally admit it. <laughs> yeah. You got to spring the trap yeah. at some point, man. Here's another, here's another good one. On, here's another good one that's like kind of taxidermy. Uh, dude in Pennsylvania, him and his brother-in-law are tracking a bear in the snow. And they kick the bear up. The brother-in-law spots the bear running downhill. And they both take a crack at it. Bear falls over dead. They skin it. There's only one hole in that bear. They split the meat and shared the meat. And they're trying to solve out whose bear hide. The brother-in-law. Like, it has to be, without knowing, the guy that spotted it would be my opinion. Yeah, I get. <laughs> I mean, how else are they going to divide it up? They, and then there's no bullet. One hole, two shots. There's no two bullet, guys, yeah. a bear, someone's like, there's a bear. And they both shoot. 
bam, bear falls over dead. They go down, skin it, one shot it, hit it. Now, this guy that wrote in has got all these theories about why he thinks it was him. <laughs> yeah, there of course. Really he, one he feels that he's the guy that got it, but... The only solution is they got to move in together and put the bear in the house. And the bear in the middle of the house. Without, like, my, with, without knowing other things, like, what, I'd be like, whose spot was it? Who found the track, perhaps? But knowing what I know, I would say the guy that saw it, it's his bear hide. I'm saying say he's putting this to like the meat eater Supreme Court. Whoever punched their <laughs> tag first. Because that guy is like so confident. He's like, oh, bed, dead bear. That was me. He, he's got it. Because somebody had to tag that bear. How would they decide who tagged the bear? I didn't ask him that question. That's a good point. Because if you, in the moment, like if you're talking about it three years later, in that moment, you kind of knew uh, maybe it was the other guy. Why don't you put your tag on it? Or he had, the person who didn't put their tag on it, had this theory like, well, I won't tag it because I get to go out bear hunting again, and he's just pissed that he didn't get another one. Yeah, a warden. So it's like it's like a game warden would want to know whose tag was on it. That might be better. Yeah, I like that one. Better than who spotted it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Confidence. Yeah. Great. Nothing. No, no. (laughs) I've just it just brought back memories of a moose hunt. And I was with a guy that I'd met elk hunting in Colorado. We're up in Alaska. We're moose hunting with a couple other buddies. We had two guys with caribou tags, two guys with moose tag. I was one of them. And I was hunting with this guy from Arkansas and saw this incredible caribou bull. And I looked at him, and, I, and I'm the one that spotted it. So it's kind of, kind of in that line of, of yours. I spotted it first, and I said, you know what? Junior, his name, Arkansas. Uh, Junior, I think I'm going to shoot that caribou and put my moose tag on the caribou, which you can in, in Alaska, anything lesser than the, the price of your, your tag, as we know. And he's okay. And so I'm lining up on this caribou, and we had kind of a downward shot, and I shot a little high. I hit it, but shot high. Now, where I come from, I mean, you shoot an animal, you're going to want to put another one in it quickly. Well, this caribou kind of ran a little bit to the right, and unbeknownst to me, Junior's there with a 375 H&H just laying down lead. And I look, and pretty soon he's going, I got it, I got it, I got it. So here was the deal. I spotted it first. I shot it. He shot it. I still wanted to hunt moose, so he tagged it. No. It all worked. Yeah. I didn't get a moose. (laughs) <laughs> so now you don't come around asking for your caribou antler, though? No, no, no. Okay, no. Uh, freezers. I mean, this is a big reason why I do not, there's no, like my sh- rifle very seldom comes off my shoulder until everybody else is long since out of the game. Now, our situation in Mexico this year was very different for me because, that. I mean, it's just so rare for me to ever like jump in there and be wanting to pull the trigger before everybody else is, is out of there. Our situation was a little bit different, but yeah, you're like the le- leaders eat last. Man. This, this is a great set of examples here to maybe just be like, Oh, missed. Saw you miss. Let's go. Keep going. Keep things clearly defined. Yeah. You good? Yeah. You feeling okay? Yeah. Uh, freezers guy wrote in, he says, I see how real, I don't know what this means, real hunters all seem to have a freezer. <laughs> he wants to know if you're running, he wants stand up or chest? Mm, stand up. Yeah. yeah. I've seen a lot of guys spend a lot of time with chest freezers taking everything out, 
finding some squirrel from a decade ago, <laughs> laying down in there somewhere, putting everything back in. That's my pro chest freezer argument that I might find something on there. I'm like, oh, there's a squirrel. Didn't even know I had that. Yeah. It's like a little grab bag. Guys with chest freezers always are eating the newest thing. Yeah. Is there something wrong with that? I'm a pro yeah, chest freezer. It's, it, my school of freezer management is, I, I derivate from this a little bit, but generally I feel that it's first in. What am I trying to say? Yeah, I'm trying to say mm-hmm. first in, last out, or sorry. No, first in, first out, right? I'm a chest freezer guy. I'm very confused. Yeah, I, yeah, I want to put it in a cool. I want to put it in a cool way, like first in, last out. But I don't know if that makes sense. Meaning, you eat the old stuff, right? And chest freezer dudes always are eating the new stuff, right? Yeah, I'm living because a good the life. Just... But so see, here, here's the here's my my like what I do. And yeah, the, the chest freezer does suck, but they're cheaper than the stand-up freezers. So you can buy two or three chest freezers for the price of an upright freezer. Really? And then you go, old freezer, new freezer, newest freezer. And you, you start eating from this freezer and work your way till the old. And then it just keeps rotating. You can even put them on top of each other <laughs> yeah. and then you have a stand-up and then once freezer the right And once the old freezer's empty, that is now the new freezer and you move on to middle freezer. That's a good idea. Like, tell your wife, like, we're on freezer two. Yeah. yeah. Freezer two. For go into, for go into freezer number two. Go to the left. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I run, uh, and I'm like really committed to stand up. I just like to open it in there. Does just... stuff ever like slide out though? Like, oh yeah. Open... yeah, bad, bad. You can hurt yourself. It's like, it's risky. It's risky because your kid's a monkey with it. The, the doors can, right? Gravity's not working for you. Half well, the time no, you're trying I to close the, it, you can't no, close it. I said it so gravity does work for me. You can open that door and move your hand. Whap! Well, you know, there's another reason. Freezers fail. Yep. So if it fails and it's upright, a little easier to get the stuff out. I don't know if you all have ever had a chest freezer fail, but I had never, in never Tucson, had Arizona. Great. But when they a chest fail. freezer fails, and you got to dig in the bottom so and pull ice all that it. stuff out. Yeah, there's so it much ice already in it. It never freezer. goes oh, back. It was blood and guts and gore. No, it's not. Chest freezers don't fail. I just realized <laughs> I got some meat in your house. You got yeah, you got meat in my upright. Yep. What I do on my upright that I haven't installed it on, my, I just had to get a new one. Is I bought one of those little uh, rinky-dink little alarms. You can get them to send a message to your phone. I haven't gone that far, but there's an alarm that raises holy hell when that temperature drops below a certain temp. So or above? Sorry, you know, but you'll know. Well, you can actually set it when it drops below too. But I haven't gotten around to that. But above a certain temp, it starts beeping, and as long as you alert people in your house, if you hear that noise, check on it. Um, but yeah, man, I open it up. It just, it's like beautiful. And when I open a guy's chest freezer, I just don't get, it's, it doesn't move me. Oh, there's mystery there. There's mystery in the chest freezer. You don't know I'm what's like, at the dude, bottom of that thing. I look, I'm like, there's some freezer burn stuff in the bottom of that freezer, man. I guarantee it. I'm still eating it, though. Still eating it. I'm a chest freezer guy. You like chest? Yeah. And I got a bunch of reusable grocery bags. And I'll, like... You know, like half an antelope goes in like a old Lululemon bag that I have, and half a, <laughs> you know, and you can kind of, as long as nobody else is monkeying with it, you, you got a system in there. Well, I stole this from Jim Harrison. He would keep a inventory. I, I quit doing it, and I should start back up. He would keep a freezer inventory on there, and you would check items out. 
you know, like you do like hash marks, like one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five hash marks for burger or whatever, and you pull a pack of burger out, you account for it. And everything was accounted for on there. But then it requires people in your household to be as OCD as you are. Because <laughs> the whole system falls apart the minute you have a family. But as a single guy, it feels really good to have that list of what's going on in the freezer. Yeah, I was going to say, that only works with no kids and running around. Yeah, it's bad. Uh, sheep nuts. Now... <laughs> There is, in my mind, there's no uh, set as impressive <laughs> as a bighorn. You think about that? You think about Yeah. yeah. Well, only because I've, been, I've had the good fortune of showing a lot of people some of the first sheep they've looked at, and, you know, you just can wait for it. <laughs> like, you just wait for it. And, man, they're like, my goodness. I'm like, I know. I don't want to... <laughs> I'm like, I wasn't going to bring it up, but yeah, it's like really something. Yeah. It's really something. Um, but a guy wrote in about, he got, he killed a desert bighorn. I didn't catch what state he's in, but he's like wondering like, what's up with Rocky Mountain oysters on sheep, you know? And I wanted to point out to him that, that the, we're at, a, at the BHA rendezvous and the team that won the wild game cook-off, their signature dish was a poached desert bighorn testicle. Do you, do you guys, what are your, have you been experiments with wild game oysters? Yeah. You digging? Yep. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, elk and the rut, not, not great. It's got a little bit of Copenhagen take it type of taste to it. <laughs> really? Yeah, really. Uh, but, you know, once you're I'm also like, I can't cook something and then throw it away ever. So, you know, it's a big lesson. Lingers, so to speak. Because uh, once, yeah, once you're committed, you're committed. Um, and they don't seem that big in comparison to a bighorn sheep. But when they taste like hot Copenhagen there in your fry pan, <laughs> they leave a big impression. Yeah, uh, when people are eating them off cattle, they're young. Yes. But then you're eating some seven, eight-year-old testicle, potentially eating big game testicles. Yeah, that is like flowing testosterone at that time it's of year. It's the I real think. deal, man. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but, you know, like, can, well, can I return to something? It's hard to use the word poached when you're talking about, because when you said poached, I thought maybe the sheep was poached, not the nuts. Oh, no, it wasn't a poached. It wasn't an illegally taken <laughs> sheep. I'm talking about like a, a cooking term, method, a yeah. poaching cooking Just method. The way, like, the way I've had them best, and we started out doing this with antelope, we'd, we'd call them hot buttered buck nuts, and we would take them out and have a ton of butter and put them in, the, um, and put them in a pan and like ladle, and so they're cooking in butter, but you're ladling hot butter over them. And in the end, dressed with some Frank's Red Hot in there, sliced it thin, and it tastes like octopus, if, if an octopus had sex with bacon is what it winds up. That's what I feel like the, the slices, the, the testicle slices wind up tasting like. That would be my recommendation to someone who is dealing with desert bighorn. But I would say to slice it very thin because it's like a small oyster is great, right? And a gigantic oyster is not so great. I mean, oysters like the shellfish. 
And I think that when you when you get into testicle preparation, a little taste, a little experience is better than a big experience. I find. Okay. I usually judge my food of where it's been, <laughs> and so I'm. You haven't kinda, done it. I'd kind of leave the the you know the the bow and the stern alone. Yeah, right. <laughs> so maybe not the brains, maybe not the testicles. Yeah, and I can see that. That's reasonable. But you got to try, right? Curiosity is what I had gets that me. Same testicle you tasted, and uh, it's the BHA thing. It was the best dish made there. But I have uh, like an aversion. I've never cooked them myself because my, one of my brothers shot a desert bighorn. I was like, oh, I'm going to try to cook the nuts, and then I put them in a little baggie and in my pack. And then I'm like, we unload all the meat, yada, yada. You had to make two trips to pack them out. Uh, and, I'm, <laughs> and I'm hunting, and I'm like, God, I must, my pack just smells like shit, you know? And it was maybe three months later, and I'm like, what's oh, in there? Oh, really? <laughs> oh. Forgot that they were in there. And that, was, that just ruined it for me. Keep track of your nuts, yeah, folks. You got to... <laughs> Don't let them out of your sight. On that same line, I used to, uh, when I'd shoot teal, you know, sitting in the duck blind, get a teal, sit there and just pluck them out and dump them in my pocket. Well, next season comes around, I still got a teal on my pocket. Check your pockets. Check your pack. Watch your nuts and check your pockets. Um, I I had an argument with my brother about what, I was trying to tell him that the tarsal gland on a deer, that if you get that, you know, they'll, they'll urinate down their leg and it goes over and passes over that oil. It's like an oil that that gland produces, and that's what they like to put on the ground to leave their little calling card. And I was telling him that a lot of gaminess comes from people getting that oil all over the meat, which he was very resistant to this idea that that's what's doing it. And he's like, I think that tastes different. Like, that tastes different than what people think they taste when they say that, like, mule deer or whatever are gamey. So he started carrying one of those around in a Ziploc bag. He, like, cut that patch of hide off one and would carry it in a Ziploc and would want people to uh, have a piece of meat and taste it, and then he'd want them to dab it (laughs) on this thing that he had in this bag in order to demonstrate his point about what causes gamey meat. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Use you hunts. What like what's the sheep foundation's take on you hunts? You know, Steve, we look at how few sheep there are out there, and there's certainly opportunities to move them. But but frankly, in in many jurisdictions, we're running out of safe places to put wild sheep. Um, either they'll come in contact with domestic sheep and goat. Okay. And get disease and die. So there, there are certain management situations where harvesting a ewe just makes good sense. You mean, so, so you're, you're, you're putting it that, um, you're putting it the, the, the luxury's not there, the opportunity's not there to take whatever you've determined to be an excess number and establish new herds. And so you're just left with what might be regarded as like excess sheep. Right. And we, you know, we've got a situation in Montana, and it, I, I think we're going to break the loggerhead, but we've had a situation in Montana that we just haven't been doing full-on trap and transplants because they're just not safe places to put them. We've been doing little, little transplants where in Madison Valley we'll take some sheep from one area, we'll bring them 30 miles or so away and try to keep them staying in that area. About a third of them 
go back. But in, in a case like Montana, it would make sense. If you've got a, a large population in a, in a confined area, um, take a few use out. Wyoming does the same thing. So it just it depends on the jurisdiction. But we are supportive of youth hunt, or not youth hunts, you hunts. Um, if, if the wildlife professionals feel that's the best, best management scheme for their, uh, their state or their province. Yeah, because a, a guy, that, a listener had written in about it, and he was looking at that you could have like a really, in, in some places there's pretty good odds, you can have pretty good odds. Very good odds. Of drawing a U-tag, but he felt like he couldn't tell if he should feel funny about doing it. Not he's like, all. it just seems like a great way to go have the experience. Um, but why do, he's like, I just feel like there's so much emphasis on Rams and he didn't know like morally or ethically. I mean, the, the ethics question on that is like, I feel like non-existent. Like, of course it's fine. Yeah. No, Which I, is, I think that one of the arguments against it be like, well, why don't you do it? I think in a lot of states, if you draw the, you, if you've been accumulating points to hopefully draw a tag for a Ram, um, I think typically you'd, you'd lose your points. No. Oh, you don't need to. Oh, okay. Typically not on the U hunts. Is that right? And, and they want to incentivize you to, to, to get them. So it just, again, depends on the jurisdiction. But as an organization, you guys are... We, totally we support gone. it if the wildlife professionals are saying that's the best management scheme uh, for that state, province, or tribal area. Yeah. What, uh, we all know that with, um, when people talk about too many elk, too many deer, we're typically talking about agricultural damage. What constitutes too many sheep? Like, what is the measure of too many sheep? The habitat, first and foremost, but as our vice president of conservation and, and operations, Kevin Hurley's 30-year biologist with Wyoming Game and Fish now, uh, now with us, been with us eight years. You know, it's funny, you look at, you look at wild sheep, and they live in the toughest, uh, most remote often, um, you know, God-loving, but also God-awful places. But as Kevin says, uh, and in particular with bighorns, they're born looking for a place to die. Um, for whatever reason, you know, this tough, tough animal that carves out a living on top of mountaintops often uh, is so prone to respiratory disease. And so the fear can be if you get too densely populated. Uh, look at feedlots. Okay. Um, you know, you get too densely populated area. If you get a disease outbreak in that situation, you might wipe out the whole herd. So, again, the wildlife professionals know the carrying capacity of the area. Um, I don't think there's a, a, a set answer of, you know, we want a population of 300 in this spot, 200 in that spot. But agencies do have uh, population goals. And if they're, if they're too high, they'll, they'll authorize youth hunts. Yeah. You hunt. You hunt. Yeah. Now, with, uh, I've heard a guy talk about, you know, I was reading a thing recently where a guy was talking about CWD, where there's this argument with, C, there's this conversation around CWD where some people are pointing, I know this is not a sheep issue, but, but a wildlife issue, where some people are saying that to eliminate baiting, uh, being able to bait deer in certain places, because it brings deer into close proximity and they'll potentially come into close contact and rub noses and stuff and transmit. But then I was reading this rebuttal to the idea, someone arguing that, it will just go watch deer. If you just watch deer, they're always up to each other, touching noses. They go up to licking branches and lick the same branch. Like, you can't stop deer. You can't stop this animal from coming up against each other. So with, when, it comes to she, like, when it comes to sort of like controlling disease spread in sheep, isn't it just like regardless of density, 
It's just the fact that their natural gregarious behavior means if there's two, they're going to find each other. Yeah, and, and we have that problem with their good gregarious to their cousins as well. So uh, a bighorn sheep could be very interested in a little group of domestic sheep down the mountain. You know, there's some pretty cute domestic sheep out there. Yeah. So, you know, in all seriousness, that, that is a problem. You've got, you've got a, a roaming bighorn, whether it's a ram or you, comes into contact with domestic sheep. Uh, it may pick up a pathogen and bring it back to the wild sheep. So there's a debate going on on connectivity. You know, connectivity sounds like it's a real good thing. You've got genetic diversity. But in some areas, uh, connectivity is a bad thing, where you may have an isolated population over here that's healthy. You may have another isolated population over here that's less healthy, has more bugs in it, and on and on. And in the past, we started figuring, well, we want connectivity, so we would connect the dots. And we would transplant sheep and fill in those holes. Well, now what have you just done? You've now taken a less healthy population and connected it to the healthiest population down the line. So it's a, there's benefit and burden to it. Yeah, I can picture it. Uh, you guys ever deal with chafing? Chafing? Usually uh, when it's r- real hot and... Guy you're talking about, about that chafing and the yeah, wolf? Yeah, guy wrote in criticizing that he just started hunting recently, and he criticizing hunters for being too quiet about chafing. Hmm. Like that they don't want to take on the hard subjects. Really? Huh. I don't feel like I'm being quiet about chafing. I'm, I mean, baby wipes are, I mean, that's God's gift to sheep hunting. Yeah. I think that to, yeah. Who, uh, who's all dealt with this? I feel some relief that I'm finally able to talk about it in an open forum. <laughs> it's a real thing, man. I deal with it at trade shows. I deal with you walking around these trade you shows. Get tra- you get chafed in a trade show? Every once in a while. That's a little too much information, Ben. Well, I thought we, was a, we were in the nest in the trust tree, are we not? Yeah. <laughs> Have any of you ever cut off your underwear? Oh, yeah. 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 Cut Chafing? off? Chafing? I'm too open. Somebody else has to go. Not prone to it. I've never had it. I think if you have really skinny legs, I think you're like immune. Yeah. It's like, it's a thing. It's chafing. You, yeah. No, I've had chafing. Really? Yeah. And was it really hot? Yep. I've or, had chafing. Um, and I found it. I don't live in fear chafing because it's, it's. You know, I think you got to give a definition here. Well, okay. I'll talk a little bit about it. But, I mean, I think there's probably some folks out there that don't know what you're talking about. Well, I think there's different kinds of chafing. So our friend. Uh, Rourke, who we've had on the show, he used to run the BUDS program for the Navy SEALs. And he's, he doesn't like to entertain anyone talking about chafing until you've experienced that chafing, which is that you're either running or rolling in beach sand. And he's like, that's chafing to a whole new level. I think that, but in my mind, there's frontal chafing, which can occur at the top of one's thighs, and there's like a rear chafing, which can occur around the areas of the gluteal crease. <laughs> I've never experienced the former. I've experienced the latter a couple of times. And I solved it. But, but who else? Come on. Yanni? I've never heard you talk about getting chafed. Yeah, I carry around baby wipes. just like gray and, you know, every few days freshen up, and that seems to take care of it. Just keep them clean. The benefactor, though, of other people's chafing 
hear me out. We were in the breaks one time. Yeah. <laughs> Definition. <laughs> please. Go on. Go on. I'm, I'm following. Go on. We were Go hunting on. bull elk, and it was the breaks can be hot in September. And we had done a big, giant big tour, and we got back, and like I was in camp, like uh, somehow just you know how sometimes on the, on the at the end of the day you just you don't want to talk, and so the faster person just moves out ahead, and you get back to camp like 30 minutes later. My bunny Tony rolls in. I'm like, dude, what Walking happened? Walking funny? You know, yeah. He's like, oh, bro, I got problems, you know, problems. <laughs> you know? And then after he gets cleaned up and we found whatever he needed to help himself out, he's like, I don't think I can go out tomorrow. Well, the thing was, we had gotten onto a big bull that day. So I was like, that's too bad. I'm going to have to go back out. And, and so, yeah, I got to go hunt this big bull by myself because Tony was back in camp with a serious case of chafe. Like, he was... Like such bad chaff he ass could, that he could stayed not walk. home. No, you yeah. gotta get bring some gold bond medicated powder. You're up on the mountain. Uh, you know, I've used uh, lip balm to cure to cure, to give you that just little bit of buffer. You gotta throw it away. Well, after. Now, question, yeah. Steve, on that one. Do you? Do you it's have not like a direct a, application. Do you have like a left pocket lip balm and a right pocket lip balm to make sure that you know you don't kind of get confused there? It's a, it's a great question. We were laughing about this the other day where um, it's a way that if you don't like to share your chapstick, <laughs> you just talk about how that this is a thing one can do and you'll find that requests for I, would, I figure they dry up. No one ever comes around asking for your chapstick. Now, can you predict chafing? No, because I, like I said, I want to be clear. I've had, I've, I've had it like maybe three times, but it's a vicious feeling. All three have been hunting. All three have been hunting in hot, hot weather, and it's all been the kind of chafing that would be called chap ass. Monkey butt. Yes. Yeah. And it's like I just wanted to bring it up because the guy was trying to, like people, when people, hunting's intimidating to people who didn't grow up around it. And you come in and it's like the tag, then that's confusing. And it's like, what gun do you buy? And that's confusing. And your ass is chapped. And that's confusing. And so I wanted to like, as a gesture toward emerging hunters, I want to just bring this up and have like a, like a form about it, tell him that he's not alone. My brother suffers from it horribly. My bigger brother suffers from it horribly. The smaller size brother does not. So I think it is linked. So it's not, it's not genetic is what It's linked to girth. To, like big dudes seem to get chapped. <laughs> you, feel, you feeling this? Yeah. We're here to share. Yeah. Uh, everybody good on that? It's relief. I feel relief. How does one dispatch a squirrel. So you, a guy is more about this. You shoot a squirrel with a shotgun, squirrel falls down, but it's not dead. This causes him a lot of distress. I'm not a big squirrel hunter, but I'd say I'd do the same to rabbits and fish. Knock on the head. Yeah. Knock on the head with another tool. Or, or like grab it, hit it on the, either one. Yeah. Wouldn't matter. Yeah, very quickly... Um, I very quickly, against a tree, like a good swing, thwap, or against the butt, butt of a shotgun or butt of your twenty-two. Unloaded with the barrel pointed away. Safe muzzle yeah. control, <laughs> but it's a nice, a clean. Like I don't want to sound macabre. It's like a guy wanting to do the right thing, right? I'm trying to help share the information with him. A nice, clean, you know, 
For you folks listening from home, I'm, I'm uh, taking my hand and going whack with it. And I think that works well. Yeah, I think stretching their neck, you know, just grabbing the head and maybe the, the hind legs or the shoulders and just stretch their neck, you know, an inch or two. That seems to work pretty good, too. Separate the vertebra. Yeah. Works good for rabbits. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system made in the USA... Gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like You still slide stuff right across the deck it doesn't catch on the d-rings the d-rings are built in the drawer system fits any trucker van on the road in the usa from the last 20 plus years deck is a game changer 
there's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck out of the way and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. I was in a pool one time and I'm with a bunch of, I'm with my wife, some of her friends, all of our kids are in the pool and a rabid, I, I assume he's a rat, a crazy squirrel, an insane squirrel comes up to the edge of the pool and starts running up and down the edge of the pool, jumps into the pool with us and starts chasing people, swimming, chasing kids every which way around the pool. And I did a similar, a similar, the same kind of grab by the tail and did kind of a double and <laughs> sailed him back out of the pool in such a way that it proved fatal for the squirrel. Like, just a sharp gone. And he didn't come back. No, we found him. He's dead. Yeah, it was like that kind of, that kind of speed. Um, <laughs> this is what I wanted to bring up for a while, and I think this is good, this is good for sheep hunters to learn about or ta- to have a good open discussion about this. It's what we've come to call talking into, talking someone into, and a guy that wrote in, he calls it t- how to talk on to something. Meaning, you're sitting there hunting, and you see something very far away, and it's hard to see, and your buddy's like, well, where is it? And then you get that sinking feeling of like, oh, no. What's the best way to talk someone, one, is it into or onto? We say into. How do you talk someone into or onto? What's your best method? I'm going to tell what his method is after I hear what you guys feel the best method. I know what I believe and I know what he believes. Oh, okay. I I do this a lot. This is part of the guide job. Like you see something and first off, you, if, because like you can hunt with different people. There's certain people that you go, oh, it's over there and they pick it up right away. Right? Those people, you can tell them where you see other things. Some things you just have to, like, and then there's people that no matter how well you explain things, they just never get it. So you don't have to divulge everything you spot to them. Like, I've found, <laughs> figured that out, you know? <laughs> just the important stuff. You and just keep quiet. Yeah, you just keep quiet. <laughs> until you're like, you want them to see something specifically. But what I do is I, you always pick one defining landmark and start from there. And then you, like, build a breadcrumb trail to what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, something very defined, like this table right in front of us. Now see the direction that the pen is pointing on that table. All right, now three rows back from that and two to, you know what I mean? Like you build off of, you build one thing that's impossible to miss, but not saying that thing right there that you can't miss. Like you have to describe it exactly once they've got that, then you can go off that and work your way toward anything. Yeah. Like an, you start with a... The, like something that's infallible, like everyone would agree on. Correct. Like the yellow school bus. Yes. Say. But not like the green tree on the hillside 500 yards away. You have to start something very, very specific. The highest peak on the skyline where two ridges meet, like things that cannot be changed. And then you work from there. That's the dead giveaway of someone that doesn't have their talking into a program dialed in. As soon as I hear green tree, I'm like, okay, Who's next? <laughs> or the, yeah. There's like, yeah, the green tree. Or the green tree. See that tall tree. hill over there? The yeah. rocky area. 
that bushy area, then I'm like, oh man, this is going to be, I'm just going to go look for something different. But another thing is like, I like when I'm going out with people, I like to cue them in on what plants are what, because it's way easier to be like, it's the only juniper on that hill. And if they understand what a juniper is, they're ahead of the game. But if every tree is the same tree to them, then a lot of times, so if you know the different plants and you can, you know, along the way you learn what plants are, what, then you can say, okay, it's next to that Mormon tree or a Federa bush to the right of that, like that other bush, because there's a lot of different plants that might be a little more sparse or thick patches of different types of plants. So just knowing what you're looking at makes a huge difference. Yeah, a glossary of terms. Yeah. Like, get right. that, like, that is a saddle. You see that little place over there? That, you know, that's what I call a peak. Yeah. My, my buddy that, John that area's did a, a little bushy area. <laughs> my buddy John did a good job of that. Like the first time we went and hunted Mexico, we all just sat down. I was like, this is an ocotillo. This is an agave. This is a this. This is a century plant. Because those are the plants that you're going to be using, and it might not be something that you're familiar with. Once everybody knows what you're talking about, it makes it way easier to point something out. That spiky thing over yeah. there. When you're doing your talking into, you always have to end every sentence with a question so you can get an answer too. Yeah. Do you see that century bush over there? Because you can't, there's a century bush over there. You want to invoke a reaction. Yes, I do. Century no. plants and yuccas have a way of making their way into a lot of talking intos. What I've, uh, I'm going to get to what this guy proposed. I think it might be revolutionary. But uh, what I, the way we've kind of developed this, we do a lot of this at work. So we're always trying to explain to camera guys where stuff is, and then they have the extra hard job of trying to find things on a little screen, like a little LCD screen, which is really difficult to do. But we start with the, the, the undeniable thing. And it could be that you're looking at something over there. If the only obvious thing is over here, I'll, you still, that's extreme. But like start with the, the thing that you know. And then we do center of the clock. So the thing that we identify, we always make that is the center of the clock. And then you breadcrumb them in, but every breadcrumb becomes the new clock center. Like a crosshair? Yeah. <laughs> like a crosshair. <laughs> you know, Steve, I think it's good also to practice before you're out. I love to mentor youth. I love to, um, you know, mentor new hunters. And, you know, before you're even out in the field and you got to dial them in, do some practice rounds. Yeah, use whatever technique you you have, but but do that before it's game time. We could do it with audience members right now. We could. Yeah, see that guy from him go to twelve o'clock. There's another guy. Right here, I got another thing that I do that I I just feel kind of like sometimes when you're guiding and you get a person that just does not understand, like you you guide him in real well. I just now what I do is I'm like, okay, I know what I'm dealing with. I pull out my phone, I take a picture, I circle the area, I hand him the phone. <laughs> Keep glassing. <laughs> Dude, that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. He's like, click, circle, here. And then, and then you get back to work. You just keep glassing. That's a, yeah, that's solid, man. Uh, with if you the, flip the screen, there's a game on there, too. Yeah. So. <laughs> with the, the, center of the, clock, the center of the clock deal, I was trying to explain it to my six-year-old the other day. I was trying to talk her into talk her into a deer up on the hill out our we're looking out our window eating uh, getting ready to eat dinner, and I'm telling her and she looks at me and she says I don't know how to tell time. I'm like that's a good point, Rosemary. And then we'll we'll go and find another way of going about this. The guy proposes this, and I feel like this is really going to change stuff. If he they, you know like the trick of when the sun's going to set, you're trying to figure out how much time you got before the sun hits the mountain. 
There's like, it's what, a finger per 15 minutes is a rule of thumb. Yeah. They do, him and his buddies do, okay, like you're like, okay, well, let's agree. Like you see that rocky outcrop. Okay. Now drop down from there, stretched out arm, bent fingers, and they do finger counts. Lay your index finger on the rocky outcrop and then drop down three fingers and what's there. I feel like that would be really helpful. But it's only going to work when you look with the naked eye because as soon as you start doing it through binoculars, you can't. But it just... tells him where to look. Yeah, in the, like I'm saying, with the naked eye, in the early stages of talking one into something, it'll work. Can you imagine how many people think this is the stupidest conversation? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a really big deal, though, man. I think we should go back to chafing. <laughs> oh, do we put chafing to rest? Yeah, chafing happens, man. I got him. Yeah. Uh, I want to jump into literature real quick. Everybody, like... Uh, every name, like, what's the best book? Like, if you had to tell people, like, people that are, like, wanting to learn about hunting and wanting to experiment hunting, they can't do the best. But if you could be like, man, if you're going to read one book, make it this book. Imagining from an audience of someone who's interested in or developing an interest, and, and think of it, like, in a big way where you're really giving them a, a sort of gift, a sort of framework to begin entering the world. I think I'd at first, it better be a sheep one. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> I, I was into Africa before I was into sheep. And so, you know, I could pick I the Hunter, you know, some of, some of Robert Rourke's works. And it wasn't so much the species, it was just how he wrote about the landscape. Mm-hmm. And it just inspired me to to be there. So you know, I guess I would I would look at it from a standpoint of of what's you know what's going to bring out the essence of hunting in you. It may not be the critters. It might just be the sights, the sounds, the smells, the whole nine yards. I think it I think it just depends on where you want to go. There's some unbelievable books on sheep hunting. We'll throw one out there. We want concrete, would, actionable would, stuff here, I would Greg. look at I would look at Bob Anderson's Great Rams series as, as one of them. That's a good book, man. They're inspiring. Yeah. You know, great photography and, and Bob's wit and his way to caption photographs is, is second to none. And a gratuitous plug, he's going to be at the Sheep Show signing his latest book. It's interesting you use the word inspiring. It's a really inspiring book. It is. I mean, it's like a coffee table book. It is, totally. But it makes you, dude, it makes you want to... Get out in the mountains so bad. Like, do that you, book. Makes you want to hunt sheep. Doesn't turn you off. Turns you on. Some books do the opposite. Right. You know, the, 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 it's too hard of a reach and it doesn't. But that book's fun. Yeah. Everybody's got to go. Everybody say, gets uh, chapped. Turkey season's coming up. Colonel Tom Kelly's 10th Legion. Yeah. Is like, they call that man the poet laureate of turkey hunting and for good reason. That book is, the way he describes a turkey, just, you know, this is a raptor just walking in. He's calling it in. It's a very common hunting happenstance that this happens to all turkey hunters all the time. But the way he describes that, every interesting, like all the intricate things that are happening through the lens of this man's eyes, is it changed the way I look at turkey hunting. It's sure. a great one. I don't know if it's fair to say, like, the, it sells it a little short to say it's the best turkey book, 
Because there aren't any turkey books. Yeah. I mean, it's really the only... It's really up there. The it's like, I feel like it's, it belongs to kind of in the canon, the hunting canon. Yeah. yeah if you, if you put it along with like just the description of talking to an animal, calling an animal to you, yeah. having that conversation, his description of that conversation is... It could be a turkey, an elk, whatever. It doesn't matter. The way that he describes it to me is the best out there. He's a considerate writer, too, because right away you're like, why in the hell would this book be called The 10th Legion? And then he explains it so quickly that you don't need to spend the whole time wondering why it's called The 10th Legion. So don't worry about that. It's called The 10th Legion. It has nothing. It's a turkey book. You'll like it. Yeah. Cal? Me? You ready? Yeah. For yeah. a, the, the first bunch of years I knew you, you had a book about Ireland in your truck. Yeah. Trinity. <laughs> but that's not your pick, right? Yeah. That, I mean, that definitely teaches you a thing or two, but probably not. About taters and whiskey. Oppression. Uh, which is a good thing to know if you like to, if you really want to get into hunting. There, there's some oppressive times for sure. Um, so I think uh, Jack London's short stories, uh, he does a good job of stringing together like miserable, severe conditions with um, kind of this string of like, you know, humanity. Uh, also, Robert W. Service does the same thing in his, in his poems where it's like, Things are terrible. You're going to lose some fingers and parts parts of you. But um, it's kind of like this is what life's about. Um, so find a way to come through on the other side type of stuff. And then I really like uh, Faulkner's The Big Woods because it it's a little bit... It was hard for me to get into, but I probably read the thing like 15 times at this point. Um and it's, it kind of goes through this multi-generational hunting camp, and it kind of hits the different characters that you will um, come in contact with through a life of hunting, like the folks that never really leave camp. They're more there to tend the fire and tell stories, and, um, and then there's the folks that kind of slip away, and they're doing the real hunting pretty much for everybody in camp and kind of gives you a, a, an insight into a, a, a big group of kind of classic hunting characters. Yeah. And I wouldn't consider any of these, like, real hunting books, but good educational books if you want to end up spending a lot, a lot of time outside. Yanis? Hmm. Does it say Yanis on here? You spelled it Yanis today. <laughs> Giannis when you put so, a Y, it makes it Yanis? Oh, uh, Giannis has gotten so broke down by people mispronouncing his name, he actually spelled it phonetically today. I'm just saving everybody time so we can talk about sheep hunting instead. Johnny. I, I got a bunch of uh, recommendations. Are you going to make me pick one? Yeah, man. One book. A Co- couple quick thoughts. One book and why? Obviously, you can, uh, there's a bunch that you've written that I think would be beneficial to any new, new hunter. My favorite is still a Scavenger's Guide. Oh, that's nice, um, thank you. Even though it's not like a real hunting book, but uh, it's just like, again, it's like kind of what Gray said. It kind of just gets you in the spirit of going and tracking down stuff and going on an adventure, you know? Um, but, and again, to what Gray was saying, Robert Ruark, you mentioned him, right? Uh, the Old Man and the Boy. Great book. 
some hunting in there, life stories, but you don't feel like you're reading a how-to on hunting. Um, but you can learn a lot from reading that book about hunting, safety, uh, generic stuff. Um, and uh, I'll leave it at that. What do you got, Remy? Okay, well, I got I guess, is the question about just a book that would interest someone in hunting or like someone that wants to learn about hunting? Because I have, you know, I mean, that's very different. Uh, just, yeah, it could be like something that winds up uh, being, impact, like being impactful. Okay, well, this one. So not a how-to manual. Right, okay, then, then the term you used at the beginning, like you can't apply today's standards to something of the past. What, presentism. Presentism. Yep. No presentism allowed in my book recommendation. Um, but as a kid, I probably read this book more than any other book. Like every book report I did was on Death in the Long Grass by Peter get, Kapsik. Did you get where you bet you got good grades doing that? Was I, um, <laughs> you know, I got so good at using the same book that yes. <laughs> now it's like in today's standard, it's not a politically correct book because he's hunting all kinds of dangerous game in Africa and other things. But the first chapter in that book... Was it like a, is, it, is it racist? or what no, makes it's not it, racist at all, no. but like killing lions, elephants, you gotcha. know what I mean? Like things that hit rhinos, hippos, everything. Yeah. Um, but like the first uh, portion of that book is possibly the best description of why people hunt that I've ever read. Um, it, it talks about like, you know, it being a part of our culture and like how humans have evolved as hunters over thousands of years and how you go to these remote places and that's never changed yet. Society sees things completely different even though that that's not how the world works. And um, I just think it's like one of the best descriptions of being a hunter. Like he's just so good with words that um, I would always refer to that like back before there was internet and other things of like a justification for hunting. He does a really good job at laying that out. And then he goes on to tell some amazing adventure stories of um, not only his own accounts, but accounts of like, you know, the man-eaters of, uh, was it Tassavo? Tassavo and, yeah. and other stories in there that's just like massive amounts of adventure, man versus wild, beasts killing animals, and then, you know, being like a hunter. And then he also puts, gives a lot of credit to like the native trackers and their skills and abilities. And I just think that that's really cool tying all that in into like this cool adventure book. Death in the long grass. Death in the long grass. It's funny that I've talked about this before, like fly fishing has inspired much to my chagrin. It's inspired so much more literature than conventional tackle. And Africa seems to inspire a lot of literature. Yeah. You know? And I mean, like some of like the old classic greats were like moved by Africa to write well, about I mean, hunting. It's, it's like, you know, when these books were written, it's essentially the largest wilderness in the world, really. I mean, a lot of these trips are going on foot or creating roads into these areas and very others. Oh, I mean, like a large amount of adventure because it's very untapped. Yeah. Um, and still there's parts of Africa that are like that, like semi-mysterious. And it's so bizarre to me, though, too, because it's like. You could have done that here or in the Yukon. I mean, had we just, like, knocked down the game numbers so dramatically at that point that it was like, well, let's just go to Africa instead? Yeah, in the, hey, in the, in the heyday, it was like, that was the, that was the, it was the good old days here, there, and it was the dark ages here. Yeah. When that stuff was really coming on the scene, you know, from the literary perspective. 
the book, like the book that most changed my view on wildlife and, and kind of ecology and environmentalism um, is a book by a guy that's very uneasy, almost antagonistic toward hunting uh, named Barry Lopez. And it's his book, Arctic Dreams. And the reason I think it's helpful, like if you like to hunt, the reason that it's a helpful book to read is Lopez uh, in his talk about Eskimo hunters and his talk about wildlife in the Arctic and what's happening in the Arctic, he makes such a compelling case about, he doesn't condemn it and he doesn't take cheap shots, but he lays out in a really clear way like why he's uneasy with hunting to the point where I, I think that it actually winds up being like helpful in understanding the mindset. And I think that he offers, because he's, he's so brilliant and articulate, I think he actually offers like a, a, a psychological pathway to finding a way to be, to, to end up being very comfortable with hunting. But it's interesting to read the perspective of someone who uh, has just arrived at, a, at arrived at a place where they just don't see it. They don't see it and it makes them feel a little sick um, because there's enough in there that you read it and you're like, you, like I said, you, I feel like it helps you find a path forward in understanding wildlife and our role to it. And that was like a very, like when I read that book, it really shook me up, man. But like not in some way that made me question what I like to do, but it made me just understand what I like to do so much more. Arctic dreams. Now, Yanni, you want to do? You want to tell Gray what he's got to do? I do. I want to. We should. I should intro what we're going to do. And yeah, then I'll tell Gray what he has to do. Because I thought that you could do it while, after he picks his. No, you, however you want to run the show. Yeah, we are. We have a uh, game we're going to play called uh, "Seeing Through the Bullshit." Seeing through and the bullshit. And it is brought to you by our friends at Vortex Optics, and uh, they've been so kind to give us a. Uh, Fury 5000 HD yep. binocular, which is their new range-finding binocular. There it is. Oh, oh, right here. There we go. And uh, we're going to pick a random person out of the uh, crowd here right now to uh, come and play the game. Um, and I'll explain the game in just a second. But uh, to pick that person out, I'm going to have Gray pick a number between 1 and 4, and then a number between 1 and 10, and then a number between 1 and 12. <laughs> I'm going to have you do that first, and then I'll explain how we're going to get to the person. That work? One and four. Go. Three. Three? Three. Okay. Seven. Seven? Eleven. Three, seven, eleven. Okay. So section three, we went one, two, three. So in section three, seven rows back. What was the last one? Eleven? Eleven. If you're, if you're the seat from left to right, me looking at you, the eleven seat over. In the seventh row. You got it? Somebody count. Come on up. Okay. Come on up here. Uh, you might have to come around the back. Come, come, sneak through there. All right, so what we're going to do, we're going to do like a, a drinking game without drinking. It's two lies. It's two lies and a truth. And again, this, the name of the game is Seeing Through the Bullshit. We're going to tell two lies and one truth. You got, what's your name, bud? Caden. Caden, you good with this? Yeah. You excited about it? Yeah. Come around in the front here, man. 
Take my seat. I'll stand behind you ominously. Do we got a, do, do we, do we got a mic? Do we got a mic? Oh, yeah, we got... Uh, he doesn't really need a mic. I'm sure he can pick it up from the rest of us. Do you, uh, do, to what degree do you feel like you're good at telling when someone's telling you a stretcher? Probably not good at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you stick with me, buddy. Do you, got, do you have a good pair of binoculars? How, how old are you? 17. 17? Yeah. These are nice binoculars. Yeah. Do you have, you have range-finding binoculars? No. These things do a good job of picking stuff off. We were no, picking off... I tried off, them over there. Yeah, we were picking off coos deer at, you know, 1,000 yards of these things. It's pretty handy. All right. Do you know what... Have you ever... Do you ever played two... Uh, you ever played this game? Yeah. You've done this. How old are you? 17. Where have you done it? At school. At school. <laughs> good okay. answer. Do you want to hear a lie or the truth first? Truth. That's a joke. That's a joke. I'm not going to tell. <laughs> I couldn't tell. You okay. straight face. Good poker face. Okay. Johnny's going to tell you a story. Short story here. Be sure to look him in the eyes now. I will. <laughs> Deep um, into his eyes. There's, in 1990, they outlawed mountain lion hunting in the state of California. May or may not be aware of this, right? Um, right. Did you know that? No. California banned mountain lion hunting outright. At that time, there was a fella who was just getting into running hounds. Okay. Um, for the next twenty years, he got so good at running mountain lions. Oh, sorry, I got to preface it with they. Um, you couldn't do it legally anymore, right? But the state still needed problem lions and depredation lions taken out, right? So this guy got to working for the state. He got to be a really good hound handler. He ended up catching, I think, 379 in, in the next uh, 10 years, I think it was. And he get, became the state's top um, depredation mountain lion hunter. Okay? What makes it crazy, though, is that he wasn't running them with the regular old walker treeing hounds. He was using a pack of beagles. All right. Late 1800s. Early 1900s, in the Himalaya, there is a tigress, a lady tiger, who takes to killing people to the point where this tigress is credited with killing over 400 people. They had to bring in the army of Nepal to try to kill the tiger. They couldn't get it done. Eventually, an American came and in a couple days shot it. It's called the Champawat Tigress. What do you think so far? <laughs> Truth over here. All right, you want to hear the real story? Okay. So, Reno, Nevada. Biggest little city in the world, right? It's a slogan. Okay, so how, that, that's a new slogan. Kind of had to reinvent itself, which it did. But there's this guy named Major Reno, and he was a player in the worst loss in U.S. military history, Battle of the Little Bighorn in Montana. Okay, and this man had a very checkered career in the military, including at that battle, it was purported that he in the face of possibly 26, 2700 charging Sioux and Cheyenne warriors, produced half a bottle of whiskey 
and told uh, his second-in-command, Benteen, I've got half a bottle left. Now, at the time, you could name railroad depots after people in a commemorative sort of way, and the survivors at the Little Bighorn named a new Western Railroad Depot, Reno, as kind of an inside joke because of that man's, you know, probably not too good command there at Battle of the Little Bighorn. And that's where you're sitting right now, Sonny. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so is it Cal's story on how Reno got its name by a drunk captain? Is it the Champawat killer? Steam's story about the Champawat tigress. Or Yang's story about the unlikely mountain lion hunter that uses beagles. Can the audience help him? The audience can help. If If you you need audience help, help, you can do it. I I can walk over and do one of these and you guys can cheer for what you think is... Do it, man. You, like you got, you, you're not sure. No, I'm not sure. Ben? I need some help. <laughs> Just cheer for the truth. If you think Yanni was telling the truth, go ahead and give a cheer now. Now, if you think Ryan Callahan was telling the truth, give me a cheer. Oh, my Lord. Steven Rinella. <laughs> you like lions or tigers? Um, yeah, Giannis. Giannis? Yeah. No, man, the Chompawat killer, the Chompawat tigress. <laughs> deadliest animal, deadliest animal ever. Jim Corbett killed it, tracked it to its lair and slew it. It had a busted canine. It had busted up and lower teeth. It had been shot by a bullet. And it had damaged its teeth. And they figured that that somehow either pissed it off or limited its ability to eat native prey. And it started to prey on people in broad daylight. But you know what, dude? We're going to give you the knocks, man. (laughs) Because... (laughs) Because... So there you go. Some Vortex Furies, man. Enjoy them. Thanks for playing along. Let's give him a hand. Thank you very much. <laughs> What's your name again? Caden. Take care, man. <laughs> All right, and guys, you, everybody out there, uh, we gave our stuff away. Thank you very much for joining us, and uh, stay tuned for future episodes, and enjoy Sheep Show 2019. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, Steve, birthdays. 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 One last thing. Oh, what's the last thing? Birthdays. Oh, no, no. Yeah, don't leave. (laughs) Who's who's got a birthday today? Whose birthday is right now? How many people? Stand up if you got a birthday today. You need an idea to prove it. What's that? No, no, no. Birthday right now. Who's got a birthday right now? Nobody's got it today. Really? No one? Is anybody's birthday tomorrow? Oh, we got a lot of them. How many tomorrows? Okay. So tomorrow there's, we need the oldest people whose birthday is tomorrow. Because you got less time to be alive. We want to make sure you, (laughs) we want, uh, you got less time to be alive, so we want you to enjoy it more. So shout out your ages. 
Sit down, 23. <laughs> and then what was yours? Oh, yeah, you're no good. <laughs> 43? 38 and 43? No, yeah. Uh, you guys, t- come take one, of these, uh, take one of these Yeti. We need four of them, but take one of these Yeti chairs. All right. Everybody have a good night. Thank you. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable, they're very fashionable, and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go. Stop by your local Tacova's store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.